This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast with your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. Um, it's our last podcast for the year, and in fact, for the decade, um, come to think about it. And uh, where does the time go? It seems that just yesterday I was new in the industry with a full head of hair and a trade full of hope, um, but a trade dealing with a lot of, um, a lot of change and, and many challenges. Um, it was around the, the financial crisis at that, at that stage. Um, but fast forward to today, and I have no hair, and uh, I'm a bit, a bit, a little older. And uh, while the industry is still, still dealing with, um, with a lot of change, so it's, uh, it seems that it's true that uh, the only constant is change. Some things um, change, and th- some things stay the same. But um, speaking of consistent middle-aged gentlemen with no hair. Um, joining us today in the studio is our Rappaport um, publisher, um, John Costello. How are you, John? Welcome. I'm wonderful, especially after that introduction, Abby. Um, well, it's great to have you. And um, the man with the fashionable Argyle Brown um, jumper on, uh, Rappaport senior reporter, um, jo- Joshua Friedman, is on our panel today as well. Welcome, Joshua. Thank How you. are you? Very well, thanks. I considered wearing the uh, the Argyle pink, but uh, yeah. I think it would go well. Uh, wouldn't go so well with the uh, with the the blue shirt, maybe, but uh, but you're looking good. And of course, bringing a bit of elegance and class to us ruffians um, is our editor in chief, Sonia Esther Sultani. Um, welcome, Sonia. You just got over a bit of a cold. Um, are you feeling better? We'll see. I don't know. I don't think my voice is completely here, but it's great to be here anyway. Thanks, Avi, for the lovely introduction. Um, well, it's, uh, it's Charmer. Great. The guys are looking at me like, <laughs> you don't see that in a studio, but I'm getting like evil looks from the boys. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's great to, to be back in the studio. Um, it's been, been a while since our last podcast. And um, I guess it's that time of year when, when temp- temperatures drop, um, people, it seems to be a bit of a flu season in, in our parts. Um, but it's uh, when temperatures drop in the northern hemisphere, it's a sure sign that um, the season is coming. It's towards the end of the year, and uh, and we're in the middle of the the holiday season. It's, it still amazes me what an emphasis, how much of an emphasis the industry puts on the on the holiday season, and um, and I guess it still it still sets a tone for the year. And uh, we, Sonia, we, we ran a story in the in the Rapport magazine about um, some of the changing trends. That uh, that we're seeing at retail and the approach to the holiday season, what what were some of the uh, what what were some of those changes that uh, that we pointed out? So the first thing is like the most of the holiday the jewelry sales happened during um, the Christmas season. Still, most of the retailers that were interviewed by a contributor Lara said forty percent of their sales is still during that time. But they all noticed that if you have a bad Christmas, it means you have a bad year. It ends up you know being bad for the books. And I think the industry is coming to terms with not putting all the efforts into the Christmas season. They can't just afford to to have one, two good months and then the rest of the year is very calm. One of the retailers had this uh, great quote. He said, I can't be a bear. I can't go into hibernation for 12, uh, 10 months and then for two months I come out. So I think that's, this, that's the general feeling in the industry that they need to create more occasions throughout the year to to get people into the store and buy jewelry. Um, it could be obviously engagement rings, it can be self-purchasing, gifting, Valentine's, Mother's Day, graduations. I mean, 
there are a lot, a lot of other opportunities. Right. I mean, I, I think that's quite surprising, actually, because um, I mean, this has been a theme that's been spoken about for for some time now in the industry that um, that people are put that people think they should be relying less on the on the Christmas season. Um, but it seems that there still is that emphasis. But but I, but I think one of the the points that the that the article brought out is that the consumers' um, uh, attitude towards the their holiday gift shopping has changed in a big way. Um, John, you, you, we, we were speaking about um, some of the, the the trends that we were expecting the, um, for the holiday season, and uh, you mentioned that uh, that customization and personalization is um, is something that uh, more jewelers are gearing towards. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why Christmas is still so big for many jewelers it's because it's a it's a ready-made sales opportunity. So not a lot of thought needs to go into it, not an incredible amount of marketing needs to go into it. It's it's there for the taking for many. But I, I think uh, a lot of the jewelers who don't want to be bears like Sonia mentioned and don't want to go into hibernation uh, for the, the other 10 months of the year, um, uh, they're, they're looking at what opportunities can I reach out to my customers and encourage them to make a purchase and an awful lot of them are, are looking at that customization like focusing in on who their customers are realizing they're all individuals they have different lifestyles they have different relationships you know someone will want to get married some will not want to get married some want commitment rings some want engagement rings some are in same-sex marriages some some aren't so the the, the whole opportunity out there when you when you zero down on on the person that is your customer it suddenly opens up a world of opportunity and i think a lot of uh, local retailers are realizing that the retailers are really using social media cleverly using events within their store cleverly and really learning about their individual needs of their customers that's what's driving an, a, an awful lot of them to be able to lessen the dependence on these ready-made gifting holidays like like christmas and, and valentine's day mm-hmm. well in our last um, podcast that we did we we interviewed um steven lassier um who's the uh I guess the head of marketing and, and branding at De Beers, and they they had um, just put out their insight report for the year. And one of the me- and I think the most important message that he put out um, about their report, which was that uh, we're living in a much more diverse world, and that the the the, the jewelry trade needs to, uh, and in fact the industry across the pipeline needs to be more open-minded and um, and approach their marketing on a much more diverse. Um, on a much more diverse um, scale. Yeah, and the, and the word that goes hand in hand with personalization is another key trend within the industry and that's customization so apparently now uh, amongst millennials and, and younger generations it's actually not the size of, of the ring or the setting it's actually the how unique it is to to, to, to them and their tastes uh, etc so it, it's much more difficult for for jewelers now just selling uh, off the, off the shelf they actually need to sit down understand the the wishes the dreams the loves of, of all of their customer and then help them walk through the whole process and, and, and for some of them ultimately help the customer design their own ring that it's a it's a unique statement piece for them that means much more than whether it's a carrot, two carrots, a, a, a 50 pointer. It's actually what it means to them personally. So that whole personalization, customization goes hand in hand. And you see a lot of the big retailers waking up to that like 
Tiffany's um, are spending over 250 million or spent over 250 million in a makeover over their store on uh, and Macy's are, are spending 200 million plus renovating 50 locations and all of them are driving towards this theme of personalization customization a real experience for the individual shopper so I, I think all these kind of um, stores that look the same behave the same those days are, are, are ending and, and it goes as well to this whole omni-channel approach that people may look online but they, they like going into stores to try on and, and they're trying to blend the two worlds to make it a very unique experience for the wants of that specific individual customer not right. customers at large right I mean the, the when I look back on the last decade um, the, the, there's as we as we've discussed and so many, so so often that there there's um, there's been this sort of void of generic marketing and that's the term that the trade uses but what, what you what what you're talking about now is um, strikes a chord for me because the world has moved away from that generic messaging and it really is about um, about personalization that. Uh, um, about personalization and and Sonia, the, the the other message I took from from that article that that we ran in the magazine is that um, one of the points that was made is that um, retail retail has become more casual. That um, that or, or at least I think they need to be more casual. Um, you know that uh, jewelry stores have tended to or historically been a very formal and intimidating place to visit. They need to reflect uh, the customer. So a customer could be wearing, um, I don't know, let's say a fifteen thousand dollar bracelet with trainers. It could, they could be wearing um, jeans with um, a diamond. You know, like I think the the world has changed. So if you go into a store and everybody's in black formal just a piece of jewelry, you're not reflecting the trend for layering, for color gemstone, for bringing estate jewelry, vintage jewelry with modern designers. So I think because the world has changed, you know, people don't go and buy half a million uh, dollar piece maybe, but they will buy more little pieces layering throughout the year. And I think that's what the article, retailers interviewed in the article said, the price range has changed and you have to offer good stuff in this price range, mm. the $1,000, $2,000, which is suitable for younger customers, millennials, for self-purchasing. It means they will buy more, maybe, and more often. And, and I think also it needs to be more relaxed. And I think the, um, what a lot of people say is like the, the stuff in, sh in some retail stores are still a bit too stuffy and not reflecting mm. the customers. They, they're still not um, showing how you can actually wear the, the jewelry, which is the which is the inspiration. Right. I, I, I think important, sorry, Abby, I, I think important is that as well. We heard this trend of storytelling is really a, a big thing now, a big theme in the industry, the story behind a piece, the story behind diamonds. But I think what retailers and shop assistants need to understand, it's it's not a generic story. It's the story as a... Is of value to your customer, what it means to that customer, and that's how you tell a story mm. based on on the listener, rather than just a generic story that you you trot out at the drop of a hat or when someone comes in. And also a big change in jewelry stores is the 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 rise of the female self purchaser, and and quite interestingly, that even extends to uh, engagement rings. And uh, I think the the it's seventeen percent, I believe now, uh, of of uh, brides to be are buying their own engagement ring themselves. So 
when women walk into a shop to, to, to buy jewellery, they're walking into an environment that for a long time was geared around a male shopper shopping for his bride-to-be, shopping for his wife, shopping for his girlfriend, or dare I say, shopping for his string of mistresses. Uh, you know, but but it, w- it was definitely a, a male environment, quite stuffy and shirt and tie, yeah. and that's that's all evaporating very quickly. Mm. I think. Well, I think it was the De Beers report that um, that brought the statistic that um, that uh, women are more involved in the in the engagement ring p- um, purchase, um, be it in terms of choosing the design, but also in terms of um, of uh, um, um, participating in the financing of the of the diamond. Um, so that that was an interesting change that we've seen over the last um, uh, over the last few years. But um, Joshua, when we when we look at the the the, the major um, retailers, the major jewelers, and I think um, one of the um, traps that they've fallen into was that um, their brands sort of didn't evolve over uh, uh, as as consumers evolve, evolved, and they, they had these this sort of um, uh, a, perspect- uh, a, a perception of being kind of stuffy, um, but that has changed in a, in in a big way. We've seen um, the likes of Tiffany and um, and Signet Jewelers um, really taking on a new strategy to restore growth and relate to their customers. I think most importantly on a fresher and uh, more youthful and uh, engaging way. Um, they they both um, just recently reported their their results and and it seems um, there've been big movements in um, in in both companies' uh, um, environment. Right. I mean, the biggest thing going on with Tiffany at the moment, of course, is the um, impending uh, takeover by LVMH, um, and uh, w- one of the one of the things there is that Tiffany is on a it's on a trajectory. It's on a it's on a path to. To transforming its brand, it's become the last in the last year or so um, more modern, less stuffy. Um, as John mentioned, they're they're re, uh, renovating their store, and uh, LVMH uh, certainly thinks that it is able to provide uh, a way of, of doing that with, with more more investment and, and more freedom. Um, uh, and it's likely we'll see that uh, increase from from Tiffany's um, perspective. And Cygnus has been a bit more a bit more mixed. We we saw in their recent results uh, a surprising improvement uh, in their third quarter sales, um, but I think the mid market has been a bit more squeezed in the, in in, uh, in recent months um, as U.S. consumers have become uh, more price conscious. And um, if you can compare the the performance of say a, a Cygnus with um, with LVMH brands such as Bulgari or with uh, Richemont brands such as uh, Cartier and Van Cleef. And there's um, uh, the, the the growth in in those high end brands is uh, has been frequently double figures, uh, right. double double figure percentages, and so there is uh, still that uh, concern for the for the mid market. Mm. I, I mean, it's a challenge that Signet has, has taken on. Um, they, they've got their their path to brilliance program, which is their um, path to. Restoring growth essentially, and it's a three-year program. Yeah. That um, are we at the halfway point? With uh, something like uh, that, yeah. Um, but it seems that um, if the third quarter results are anything to go by, um, where they restated their um, their guidance, right, mm. for for the for the full year, yeah. um, on impro- as in other words, they improved their guidance. Mm. 
um, it seems that they're right, they're on the right the right track, but it seems that it's also it's not just about stimulating um, revenue growth. It's really about being more efficient and yes. um, cutting costs. Yes, increasing profitability and yeah. Yeah. Right. The, uh, I mean, going back to uh, back to Tiffany, I, w- one of the, you know, when you talk about um, being a more engaging brand, um, so the, this year they for the for the holiday season they opened a pop up store um, for men's jewelry. Um, I don't know if we can call it jewelry because um, it's uh, it's more like a big man cave um, and playground for men to go and play. Play. I, saw, I saw the motorbike. It, it caught my attention. Yeah, there's a great <laughs> motorbike. There's a pool table that you can buy um, in the in the Tiffany blue, and um, it's. A, I think these are exciting and different, out of the box things that um, that jewelers can can do to sort of engage with customers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about female self self purchases so much, but um, but really something like this, I think, really. Um, it, it makes it more user friendly for the male purchaser who still mm-hmm. wants to go into a store and surprise his his um, girlfriend with an engagement ring. I think. Yeah, and I think there's there's so many lessons to be learned by even small local retailers because the idea of a, a pop up store it's 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 a very simple concept that's used an awful lot of marketing. And, uh, you know, when you see this uh, wonderful new car and it's driving on, on the top of a cliff or something like that, or, you know, that's meant to take a product out of the contact, context that you normally see it in, used to seeing cars and roads, not, you know, in the Grand Canyon or, or, or whatever. And the pop-up store takes that concept as well. It's it's taking the, the inside of the store away from the store and put it in a, in a, a unique place or a unique environment. And I, I think local retailers can definitely learn from that. Maybe it's take some of their goods and go to a local kind of uh, bring and buy sale or, or a, a local market and, and, and set up stall and, and, and just try to be innovative and uh, try to t- take customers on a journey with you and a new experience, new surroundings. And, and that can really help invigorate. The bigger players obviously uh, can spend money. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, stores or, or vacant lots uh, around and people are going in and, 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 and putting rent down for three months or for a month and then having a store for that. And so the more successful successful stores to actually extend the rent because the actual pop-up store has been such a success yeah, they success, want to continue yeah. it but it's it's really uh, trying to move away from static um, you know very basic type of concepts and just being a little bit more dynamic like who mm. would have thought like if you ask someone like what do you think th- Tiffany's next pop-up store theme is going to be very few people would have said for men with like man cave pool tables motorcycle by bi- motorcycle all in that f- fantastic uh, Tiffany color and uh, so it's really t- thinking out of the box but it's not only the big guys that can do it um, the small guys are probably even more flexible to be able to do mm. uh, interesting mm. things in their own neighborhoods yeah and be, be and engage with their community more and um, but uh, I think it will be interesting to see what, what happens at Tiffany um, now that they're going to be part of the LVMH group. Um, they say that um, there were some interesting th- um, observations that they made in their, in their announcement that um, as part of uh, – or, or it was a, as a company that's not independently listed – um, they'll have more flexibility to invest and and uh, not prove profitability on a quarterly basis, for example. But it's an interesting match. This um, typically American brand Tiffany going into a essentially a French um, luxury house, um, and uh, and and the subplot there is that within the luxury space there seems to be this um, sort of competition to be the biggest and the and the, and the best uh, luxury um, group. Is that something you're seeing, Sonia? 
I think there was a very interesting article in um, uh, Marion Faisal wrote about the French origins of Tiffany's. So it's actually oh, really? going. Really? Uh, Tiffany's obviously is a brand, you know, American brand. Uh, Tiffany Louis Comfort, but had um, a French designer for many, many years that's responsible for some of the most beautiful jewelry uh, created. Jim Schlumberger um, was inspired by the French uh, jewelry makers as well. So she, she wrote this very nice piece about how Tiffany, being such an iconic American brand, also has some, some French roots. So that I think, you know, um, that's, that's nice to, to point out. Mm. Um, we... Actually, for the January magazine, for January Rappaport magazine, we interviewed um, the creative director of Bulgari, which is part of LVMH. And we asked her, how does being part of such a big group impact on a heritage house, which I think is relevant to, you know, Bulgari being an Italian house, Tiffany being what it is. And she said they actually get a lot, a lot of freedom, as you mentioned. Um, they... You know, Bulgaria has been thriving, has been using all the network and um, possibilities that such a big group, you know, that the Arnaud-run um, group offers. So I think that's interesting that Bulgaria has become such an iconic brand in, in China, is still, you know, doing very, very well, still high profile, involved in a lot of events, a lot of celebrities. Uh, brand recognition is extremely high. So I think that would be interesting to see. But from what Lucia Silverstri was telling us, it's, it's been actually a freeing process to, to be mm. part of such a big group. Interesting. And, and, the, um, and one of the um, advantages that LVMH mentioned um, from, from their side is that they expect to learn um, uh, from Tiffany the um, sustainability model that they, that they bring to the table. We've, we've heard from various sources that LVMH doesn't often score highly on um, when it, when it comes to sustainability um, uh, issues, there was a big thing about Louis Vuitton. The, they destroyed clothes because they don't want to discount, and there was a big ha ha. And uh, I don't know if it's ha ha. Let's say more like boo boo. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I mean, laws were passed in France; they're not allowed to do it anymore, and they've changed. And they also said, you know, they're going to change their, their policy and that. So I think across the group, sustainability is something that's mm. becoming more and more important. Right. Well, it seems that it's becoming a, an important theme in the in the industry, and even for well, it has been for for being shifting in that that direction for a long time and it needs to be um, but we it's another theme that I think we're seeing for the holiday season that uh, more that, that uh, is this an opportunity for to boost sort of holiday sales or, or sales moving forward um, by marketing um, the sustainability aspect of, of one's uh, uh, jewelry so I have a bit mixed feelings about that because it feels like now everybody um, is showing off sustainable credentials because they know that's what millennials and Gen Z's are supposed to be looking for. Um, how well controlled these credentials are, I think that's an interesting question. I think that's, you know, obviously it should be very much on the, on the front front of the conversation. Um, but when we say recycle gold, recycle silver, um, ethically mined diamonds, what do we really mean by that? Where do they actually come from? Are there, um, a lot of people say when they use ethical mine diamonds, they like to say they're from Canada or Australia. But, you know, I think that's closing off a whole debate because we know that diamonds come from other parts of the world where right. they also ethically mined or um, try to. So I think, I think um, we need to stop um, the greenwashing that seems to be happening a bit. You know, it seems like not everybody has sustainable credentials. So 
I think that what I would like to see is how really green are you? you know? right. Just, Just because you tell me you're responsibly sourced doesn't mean you know that you are completely across the from the moment you take and from the ground to the moment you go on on my engagement ring or my bracelet or my self-purchased um, necklace or you know there are lots of other things. There are also political right. conditions. Yeah. Um, you well, tra traceability has become a buzzword, yeah. Um, but uh, and and that's why I mean we, there are, there are a number of um, uh, programs that are in that that are in development, um, and uh, and I, I would think that uh, we're going to see more a lot more news in twenty twenty about um, about the you know the Beers Tracer program, the GRA's um, um, or origin reports that they've put out, and a few other. In, in air quotes, blockchain programs, but it's really not about the blockchain. It's about um, being able to trace your diamond throughout the um, throughout the journey, so that you give, uh, so that one gives can give um, consumers the, those assurances. And you color gemstones as well. I think you know, obviously we our big thing is diamonds here, but I think color gemstones might be even more difficult to actually trace. I know there are a lot of initiatives on that, but. Some people are, you know, being a bit um, skeptical about some of the provenance of colored gemstones that are on the market. Yeah, and I think now that uh, consumers are are kind of forcing brands to to wake up and to, uh, to prove their credentials. Um, that a lot of legislation will catch up. Like we already had the, tread, um, the Federal Trade Commission uh, slap the uh, synthetic um, lab-grown diamond manufacturers on, on the wrist and saying you can't just throw around like phrases like environmentally friendly or green, you know, uh, when the amount of energy you're using to produce these is, is, is very significant. So I think we're going to see a, a, probably a lot more legislation kind of guiding people on what they can and cannot say in, in their marketing material. Um, and also I think, you know, the, the democratization of information on the internet and, and uh, the, the communications infrastructure, consumers are, are very savvy these days and I think they're just getting even more so. And I think uh, these fake cries of, um, you know, sustainability or, or environmentally friendly, I think they'll fall flat pretty quickly. So anyone who's doing it, uh, you know, as a, as a ruse, I think will be found out pretty quickly um, and I think there's so many people bringing up the issues and really digging deep and there's there's one uh, person I follow on LinkedIn that you know is, is just a fantastic uh, writer and, and really um, you know isn't beholden to anyone <laughs> and really calls it the way he sees it and uh, he's uh, called Ben Harvey Walker and he's an ethical jewelry uh, business owner um, from Brisbane in Australia and he really produces great articles that he writes uh, on his LinkedIn account and is well worth following. I know we featured an interview with him in Rappaport magazine. Which is uh, also on diamonds.net if you want to check. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's www.diamonds.net <laughs> and check out Ben Harvey. This podcast yeah. was brought to you by. <laughs> and I, I'd hope that you know we'll find room to, to cover his editorial in the future. Obviously, uh, Sonia's uh, the, the, the boss of that. But I, I think you're seeing a lot more voices like that that you know aren't beholden to the industry or are up and coming, uh, new voices, and, and they're not falling into the political status quo. And you know, they're, they're calling things as they see them. Um, and we're also in a very fluid environment, but I, but I think, um, what is sustainable, what's not, what's uh, you know, um, environmentally friendly, what's not, what's ethical, and what's not. 
those uh, lines are going to become much more sharply defined rather than the blurred lines that we've had in the past and maybe have today. But I think with technology um, and, and with the will of the industry all being led and driven by the consumer, and uh, I just thankful that we have the millennials and Gen Z to save ourselves um, as, a, as a race and maybe as, a, as an industry. But, it, but yeah, I, I think it's going to become much harder for, for companies to try to, to play that card without actually having the credentials yeah, and I to think back the, it up. The, the, the consequence of being found out are, are going to be great. Um, as we've seen in, 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 uh, in examples in other industries that um, if a company gives a message that um, is found out not to be true and not to be authentic, um, it has a, a great con um, consequence f um, for them. But um, it'll be interesting to see what happens um, in the holiday season. I, I, um, our initial reports are, are fairly positive, I think. Um, but um, And then hopefully that would bring a, a springboard to, to the year ahead. Um, uh, I, I think... Um, uh, and uh, you know, talking about the year ahead, I, I thought maybe we'd just do a quick, uh, you know, roundtable of of what we're expecting um, for 2020 and possibly beyond. I am um, I'm, I'm working on a on our monthly research report, and and I'm mulling the idea of calling it the the diamond decade. But the tens were supposed to be the diamond decade. Um, or were pronounced to be, and, and it didn't quite work out that way. So it's very dangerous to make these predictions. But um, Joshua, what, what are you seeing in the, in the diamond trade at the moment that, um, that uh, might give us some hints to what we can expect in 2020? So looking at what's happened this year uh, in 2019, um, there's been a, a, a crisis as a result of an oversupply of both rough and polished diamonds. Um, a lot of new mines came on the... Uh, on stream in 2016, 2017, and, and uh, that that inventory hasn't quite worked its way through the market, uh, through the for the pipeline yet, um, and it's been um, uh, the, uh, there's been also you know, combined with that some uh, slow consumer demand from uh, uh, from the US and China, um, and the predictions are that uh, although that will improve next year, um, it will the problem still won't go away. I just spoke this afternoon to. Um, uh, to Olya Linda, who's uh, a partner at, at uh, Bain and Company, they're um, obviously a, a large management consultancy firm, and they put out an annual um, an annual report on the diamond industry. And she's predicting, um, as we said, an, an, an improvement in, in 2020, but and there won't be a strong recovery until 2021. Um, mining companies companies have been reducing their um, their production this year, but not quite by enough um, in order to um, ease the oversupply. Um, and combined with that, a, a, a lot of um, supply issues, such as the fact that uh, retailers are now taking uh, taking on inventory in a different way. They're taking more on memo, and they're also uh, holding less inventory by by selling more um, through through e-commerce. Um, so it's it's much harder for say a, a diamond manufacturer or, or, or supplier um, to just rely on a holiday season like they perhaps could in the past to work down their inventory, and mm. um, because retailers don't aren't just a on just a, a way of uh, of getting rid of inventory like they like they were right, in the past. Right. Well, essentially, the dealers are becoming memo houses. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, indeed. And so it will be difficult for them to gauge the success of the season at this point. Um, it would only come in January once the retailers have sold off, sold those goods or returned them. That's also true. Um, yes. And so, uh, so, so that's I guess something we would need to be looking out for when mm. we assess the the market. 
Mm. Although um, we did actually receive today news from De Beers that they're reducing their their production for for their rough production for 2020. Um, uh, although it will, um, I beg your pardon, they're reducing their their production outlook for 2020. Um, so they'll they'll still be producing more diamonds uh, than they did this year, um, but fewer than they had previously expected presumably as a result of the difficulties in, in the market. Um, but uh, Olya pointed out that uh, e- even this probably wouldn't be enough to get rid of the um, uh, the challenges. Right. For, for me, from a production point of view, and I, I've mentioned this before, but um, uh, the, the elephant in the room is, is Alrosa, um, who, who, uh, which, which continues to, uh, to keep their production at fairly high levels. And in mm. fact, I think um, despite the market conditions, um, in 2019, they've increased their production, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, sounds right, but I have to check. We would need a fact check there. Um, we'll get back to you. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but uh, and and they're holding. We we know that they they re, they've reported they're holding a very high inventory of mm-hmm. rough. So so the inventory is not only stuck um, in the midstream, but there's also the, all this rough that's um, particularly from El Rosa that is waiting to come onto the market. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something I'm, I'm I'm a bit worried about for for 2020 mm-hmm. that yeah. um, it would fuel the oversupply and mm-hmm. and, and 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 continue it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the beers have also said their inventory has increased. Yeah, um, but yeah, that, that is a concern. Well, it makes sense given the yeah. given the the drop in yeah, rough sales sure. that they've seen seen this year, which um, I don't think they forecasted at the beginning of the year. So they had a mining produ- uh, a production plan in place, um, um, which they implemented, but they sold less carrots than they than they would have hoped for. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it shall be interesting. So. Um, <laughs> We're almost out of time, but looking back at 2019, we've, we've covered a lot of interesting um, news stories. It hasn't been a great year for the diamond industry, but we wear two hats. We're part of the diamond industry, and we're also news people and journalists. And it's, uh, I think it's been a very a fascinating market to cover in the last year. Um, so uh, I guess let's maybe start with Joshua, if, if I may. W- w- looking back at this year, what has been the most interesting or fun or your favorite story to cover um, uh, in, in the trade? So I spent quite a lot of time um, looking into um, which um, of the, the major traditional diamond suppliers are moving into the lab-grown market. Um, I was actually at the, at the Hong Kong show in September lingering around the, uh, the lab-grown section to see if I could catch one of the... Uh, one of the companies there that uh, is, is known to be uh, um, owned by a major De Beers site holder, unfortunately to no success. But we do believe that about five or ten um, uh, site holders um, are either seriously looking at the lab grow market or have already entered it. And although interestingly, they're, they're keeping it very quiet and they're, they're often doing it through separate companies. So that's, I think, been one of the most interesting stories of this year and also something to look out for next year because... Um, um, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that number increases in, in 2020. Mm. I, and I was hoping to get through one podcast without mentioning Lab Grand Diamonds. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, task impossible. Um, John, what about you from, uh, from your wearing your hats? Yeah, I, again, sorry to disappoint, Avi. I, I think it's, it's been an interesting year to see how uh, the, the landscape has changed a little bit in terms of uh, the messaging from lab-grown uh, diamonds vis-a-vis uh, mine diamonds. And um, the, the fact that, that they're trying to move away from this environmentally friendly and, and green option and and sustainable and, 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 you know, trying to pitch themselves. And I think... Also, the uh, the mind uh, industry um, 
through the DPA has also been pushing back very, very strongly. Um, and I, I, I think it's still going to evolve more. And I, I still believe that the, the, um, the lab-grown sector will find its its own place. And, uh, and I think eventually the, 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 the mind and, and natural diamonds will, will be their section and, and, and the, the, the lab-grown will find their section. I think that's going to take some time, but I, I, I see the, the signs of that starting to happen already. Um, in terms of the funniest story, it was like when I was researching for this podcast and I came across a story about Walmart um, that they had to apologize for this Christmas jumper they were selling. And the Christmas jumper at first glance looks wonderful. It features Santa Claus. It features a table. And underneath the table, it has um, let it snow. Um, and only on close inspection, you actually realize there's three lines of cocaine on the table. So the designer was trying to be a bit risque. And the buyer for uh, Walmart either didn't know it or really misunder- misunderestimated their uh, their audience and the, and the market. So that, that put a smile on my face. <laughs> Um, well, let's hope it's a, the, the, it's a, it's a high Christmas, either way, <laughs> high season. <laughs> Sonia, what, what caught your eye this year? Uh, many stories, but um, one in particular, um, Meghan Markle had our engagement ring redesigned slightly, which I think is very interesting. Everything Meghan does is closely observed, criticized, uh, praised, uh, favored, not favored, um, I'm completely neutral on Megan, but I love <laughs> yeah. what she did with her ring, actually. So we all know the ring, the central stone comes from Botswana. The two uh, uh, side stones were from Dinah's jewelry. So it's nice. It has this connection to the past. So customized Every, all the trends. Megan is top on trend. But what's nice is that she had a smaller band with uh, diamonds set in it. So um, so I love the fact that she actually received a beautiful ring, but she still decided after the birth of a uh, child to make it her own and to bring her own touch. And I think, you know, when we know that Megan, what Megan does, the whole world follows. Um, that's a good news, I think, for uh, for the diamond industry, because it means, you know, you can receive a ring and then you can have it changed, have it, you know, enhanced depending on how you feel because your life will change according to not because you have something set as beautiful as it is and even if it comes from a prince charming you still can change it so i like i like the fact that megan did that no, i wonder what prince charming th- thought about that he might have i, I think she, i think <laughs> megan is, is the typical um self-purchasing um she actually also wears lab-grown diamonds which you know means a lot for the UK. I think a lot of stores are actually banking on the, the yeah. Megan effect when it comes to lab grown. But um, I think she, she fits very nicely our Dubia's uh, diamond report as well. Right. And we, we know that um, the, that Prince Harry has, uh, has a, a strong um, affiliation to Botswana. And that's why. Um, but uh, I think the, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And, uh, and maybe that's part of the, uh, the trend that we, saw, that we saw written about in the, in the De Beers report about um, women becoming more or being more involved in their, um, in their engagement ring and um, purchase and design. And, and I guess it can be before, during or after. So, yeah. So that was, that was my favorite story this year. Very nice. Does and it, what about does you? Does anyone want to know what, I, what mine is? <laughs> Tell us, Abby. Oh, We've been on, dying. Go on. <laughs> Even uh, if they kick out us of the studio, we won't leave until we know uh, your favorite okay. story. Um, to 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 break the suspense. No, I am. Um, I mean, it's a bit a bit more serious. I get. Uh, I, I guess. Um, 
in that uh, I attended the Dubai Diamond Conference. Um, when was it? In in September, October. And um, first, uh, firstly, there were uh, th there was very interesting debate um, on the lines that uh, John, you were speaking about between. Um, uh, representatives from the lab-grown industry and um, and uh, members of the natural diamond industry, and um, and hearing their views on how the two markets are going to either segment or merge, um, that was it was very interesting to um, to to listen to that debate, and it's and it's published online by by um, by the organisers of the um, of the conference, the DMCC. Um, I urge everyone to watch that debate. Um, but there was also a very interesting um, discussion about um, uh, automation and uh, and um, the use of technology in the in the industry. And and for me, that was, you know, when I look back at the last decade, um, it was like really one of the first times that I have um, have covered something really fresh and new um, in the industry. And and it was really an eye opener um, and and something that people need to take seriously. If they want to understand the direction that the market is going to go in the next uh, in, in the next few years, I think um, there's going to be a lot more use of um, technology um, for the better to make the industry more efficient. Um, it will obviously have repercussions. Um, people were very worried about machines taking over um, over human resources um, in terms of the manufacturing process, in terms of grading, um, but. Uh, but we've seen these um, these revolutions in the past. You know that um, the industrial revolution, um, machines took over, but um, there were still um, jobs for 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 people. But jobs changed, and so it was a very eye-opening um, discussion, and was a, was an, a really interesting article for me to write or, or story for me to 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 cover, and one that I think we we're going to see we're going to cover a lot more in the coming years. Um, because I think that, uh, when we sit together in 10 years' time, um, looking back at the 20s, um, we'll have a, a very different discussion. I think we'll be in a very different industry. So it should be um, a fun and interesting one to, to cover over the next few years. So um, thanks very much for joining us, uh, John. It was a pleasure. Fun as always, Avi. Um, Joshua. Thank you, Avi. And Sonia. It was great. Thanks, Sonia, Evie. And uh, wish all our listeners a, a successful season and uh, and happy holidays to everyone. Happy holidays.